This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with a broad group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today, we're talking with Colin Lasso, a journalist and scholar from Africa's newest country, South Sudan. He spent two years teaching his countrymen how to do radio reporting and started a new radio station there. But for the second time in his life, he had to flee his country and come to the United States. He's now a U.S. citizen after having been given asylum because he might be killed if he's returned to his homeland. He talks with us about the civil war in South Sudan and the 1.2 million refugees from his native land. Part of what you did, as I understand it, was that you helped teach uh, people who were untrained mm, in, mm. in media yes. some of the basics of media, of interviewing, and it was mostly done with audio right. as opposed to, to video. Yes. Uh, but in, in reading some of the articles of, of, of what you did – you came across a problem, and that is people were uncomfortable or uneasy in asking just common people questions or for their opinions. Yes. Uh, talk about that. It seemed like everything before that they assumed they had to talk to an official. Right. Is that, is that correct? Do yes. I have it right? Yes, that, and, and that is true. It's, it's sort of – a common trait because if you think about it, um, uh, what would they call that? Uh, it, it escapes me now. It's, it's sort of like protocol journalism where mm-hmm. the newsmakers were the, the authorities. Anybody who was the big wig, whether it's down to the you know, county or to the you know, lowest level of local government. And so you'd find some of the trainees would have real issues. And I mean, case in point, we would run an ex- uh, you know, a case, st- a case, you know, set up a study, a case study state scenario, and say, okay, so X government has come into town. They are going to be um, uh, drilling a whole bunch of uh, uh, wells, you know, with the hand pumps and stuff. Who would you? Who would be your sources for this story? I mean, besides the government or whoever is sponsoring this stuff, um, and um, and the local government authorities. Who else would you go talk to? And there would be this look of dead silence. Everybody's just staring at you. I said, well, you know, what about the mothers who have to walk, you know, you know, three, five miles to go to the nearest water point to get, don't you think you should ask them? I said, no, 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 you know, that's, 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 you, we don't usually do it like that. I said, no, but it's, it's got a vested interest, you know, because now that is somebody who is directly affected by something like a well-being you know, bo- you know, put close by the homesteads and stuff, and and so you this came up as a consistent thing, whereby the arbiters of news were always people who were much 
much higher, you know, who either came around wearing, um, you know, their ties and uniforms and stuff like that. Yeah, because just there hadn't been that culture of where ordinary people participated. Um, And in fact, part of that aspect of the project that uh, uh, also funded by the U.S. Aid for International Development or USAID was to set up uh, community radio stations. And as part of these community radio stations, the idea is community members would talk to each other. And, you know, you could get the local chief, you know, you know, be able to address people and people could ask these chief questions and things like that. And, you know, you find trainees would always be very leery that, no, you know, traditionally we've not done it like that. So there was a bunch of cultural things that you had to overcome other than just teaching people the technologies of of you know audio recorders and and how to edit and um, you know the, with the readily available audio software like Audacity or, or you know or Adobe Audition for that matter. You did that for a couple of years, I think. Yes, uh, and the, this was full time now from two thousand nine until uh, eleven, and then there was a gap year there that. Um, uh, I didn't do much with it, and this was a project funded by the uh, U.S. federal government. Um, actually, um, the big one was that we, en- we ended up putting together probably East Africa's only, um, you know, state-of-the-art radio station. It it cost us a pretty penny, like $1.5 million. Wow. And uh, the station alone was built into 20-foot containers. You wouldn't even know it that they weren't built into <laughs> 20-foot containers. Uh, this thing was so fancy that that you could be in Studio 1 and push a button and uh, somebody in Studio 3, you know, could just easily take take it over and be on the air without anybody on the other side knowing what happened. Um, and it's, it's, it's now been renamed. It's called iRadio. Um, it's now one of the premier uh, radio stations in South Sudan. And, and because when, they, you know, they do sort of good you know, news coverage and stuff like that. So they end up into trouble with the government a lot. Uh, In fact, they got shut down a few (laughs) times and had journalists detained as well. Well, talk about uh, this. Uh, South Sudan became independent, as we may have mentioned. It's the uh, youngest country or the newest country in Mm -hmm. in Africa. Yes. not long after the independence, civil war yep. broke out. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, that is the sad, uh, that the sad story of, of of that country in the in the sense that, you know, there have been uh, simmering issues, you know, of, with the politics that, um, in a nutshell, basically it boils down to this: the president, current sitting president, a man by the name, you know, he prefers to go as General Salva Kiir. Um, and his deputy, um, you know, who instead of his military rank preferred his PhD title of Dr. Riyak Mashar. Uh, so this was how they pitted themselves. One, this big shot military guy whose entire life was, this, you know, in the military, fighting in one war or another uh, throughout the whole history of the country. And on the other, you've got this PhD, highly educated, UK-educated fella who looked at the sitting president and said, yeah, you're not that smart anyway. I mean, I should be running this country. So basically, everything came to a fold um, in December 2013. 
in fact, uh, that was what, uh, 10 days before Christmas. And on an evening, they were having their big uh, political party meeting. And later that evening, apparently, the disagreements that took place because the president, who is the chairman of the party, and the vice president, who sort of, the, you know, said, okay, listen, I intend to stand in 2018 as a president for this republic in the elections. president says he stands, he plans to stand. And the secretary general of the political party says, I intend to stand, leave alone the other smattering of other people. So in anger, you know, president decides, well, you know, I can't work with this guy in my cabinet. And he fires the whole cabinet. At some point, he was <laughs> in, uh, was that uh, uh, about May, uh, July of, of uh, 2013. Basically, there was a president and no com- cabinet. I saw that he just fired 13 <laughs> judges. Right, too. yeah, this is as of <laughs> this week. This, and, uh, so this must be an ongoing yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, and then the man operates on a presidential degree, decree, you know, so, you know, you'd be sitting there, evening news comes on on the state TV and, you, you hear you've been fired uh, while you're probably having dinner. So, so this conflict, when it, it really picked up, it then, it then really, it turned. Everybody hunkered down to their various ethnic enclaves. Um, and um, I'm sure in your reading you found out that a lot of terrible, terrible things, in fact, they say crimes against humanity, that is when a whole bunch of people basically systematically got... Uh, killed off because of belonging to one ethnic group over the other. And uh, by the time sort of the dust settled, you know, by, you know, late 2013, basically it was a full-fledged civil war. And it still continues unabated in one form or another. In fact, you know, to a point it had only taken place in mostly the north, northern part of the, of South Sudan towards the border with Sudan. Uh, But now it's all over. Um, in fact, to a point, um, at times I, 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 f- I feel like now the, the president is now remains as the mayor of Juba, uh, the capital, because he can't even travel anywhere by road, uh, live alone flying. Um, and it, it's, it's, it, the sad f- fact is that, um, you know, with the, with the influence of the United States, I think, a lot of things could have probably been done because the first peace deal, the U.S. was very instrumental. In fact, Ger- General Colin Powell was there uh, at the signing of the peace deal in 2005, uh, 2005. And that was how big of a big you know, deal it was uh, right. for the Bush administration. Yeah. As a result of the Civil War, at least, and I'm sure there are more, 1.2 million refugees, people fleeing the country, a million to Uganda and a couple hundred thousand splattered all over Mm -hmm. uh, that part of of Africa. Um, That creates so many problems as we've seen in Syria and other places. Yes. And and I tell you, there is, uh, having been a I don't know how many times I've been a refugee now. It's 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 this is a status that it's the most gut wrenching to see the people who pay who take the brunt of this tend to be the women and the children and the older folks and um, you know then because they've had these lives 
now all of a sudden you know bullets are whizzing by or, or in the in this case the government of South Sudan believes that some of these villages are harboring um, rebels, people who are fighting against the state, and they, you know, send in these militias with the blessing of the of the government to just go and say, "Go clear these areas." I mean, if if it does, if it evokes Vietnam, like uh, so, they kill uh, everything in sight, burn the yeah, villages, burn uh, yeah. And, yeah. and and in fact, rape is also a big component of all of this. Uh, as a show of, of, of power. So what this th- this has done, I mean, imagine if a million some people moving around in that East African region. Basically, they end up crossing borders either into Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, um, Congo, and to some extent Central African Republic, countries that already have issues with other refugees that exist there. Now, all of a sudden, you've got this new inflow then you have to figure out, these countries have to figure out what, you know, where are we going to find the food to give them, what space are we going to put them in, you know, what, sh- what basic shelters can they get. Um, all of this, you know, right now it's rainy season, so the rains are on until, you know, um, about in and about December. So people show up, they've got no shelter, and they've just taken off with nothing over their heads except probably the few belongings that they mustered to, to carry with them. Uh, mostly walking across uh, on foot and trudging around in motor- motorcycles and stuff. But the other th- reality is these things cost money. None of these governments have extra money sitting around to host refugees and to poor, because, I mean, take the case of Uganda, which has the largest group of the refugees. I mean, Uganda still has issues that they need to deal with, issues in health, in education, um, and even infrastructure roads and things like that that need to be paid for, they don't have this much money sitting around to take care of a million-something people who've just crossed over. Um, And so this has created a real, um, you know, drain, so much uh, pressure on on, on the health systems that exist, which are already suffering. I mean, uh, uh, explaining it here, does it pales no, really no. In, 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 in a sense because if you've got a local hospital that perhaps is able to take care of, let's just say, 100 people, and then you've got the, the UN estimates uh, people are trickling in at some point on the low end about 600 each day. Now, and, and, and if people show up with gunshot wounds, obviously they're going, they're going to show up to a hospital expecting to, to be treated. Um, and you know you've got a small pool of doctors and nurses right. who who are overworked, underpaid. Then they have to deal with these things. So it it, it is the recently the Ugandan government raised an appeal for for funds to help. Um, I don't know how far that's gone, um, but we, you know the appeal process is, you know they raise it their channels. You know they say well we've got this problem, and then they put the appeal out there, and then they. All the big countries of the world, the U.S., the Japan, and the likes, would then see, okay, what what can we individually put in, either through the U.N. besides what they've already contributed, or in this case being an emergency, finding money from economies that are already tight to put this in. The numbers are so large and the people are uh, coming so fast right. that it's almost impossible uh, to assimilate all of those people uh, I- into 
any kind of normalcy, I, I oh, assume. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, and, and it's, it's very it, – it's, it's, it's like you're playing catch-up. Um, always yeah always playing catch up because you never really know what's and if you consider just the borders between south sudan and uganda uh, most of the ethnic groups around along that border are sort of related to each other they you know because by virtue of the lines being drawn that borders are here then people got split into different countries the fortunate ones who are from the border ethnic groups usually could avoid having to sit in the refugee camps waiting for their handout and they could go to their distant cousins or relatives and just, you know, squat and try to get along with whatever else they have um, while they figure out how to get registered because you can't get any assistance whatsoever unless you register officially as a refugee at the refugee camps. And you factor this in with a sense of, you know, nobody knows when this is ending. There is no end. Some peace deal had been discussed, signed, and then last year, basically everything exploded all over again. Uh, last year in, in July, in fact, <laughs> just about, about a year, about a year ago. Yeah. Um, and that was even uh, uh, some of the friends who've remained behind said, listen, you know, the, the 2013 armed conflict pales. I mean, that looked like a rehearsal uh, wow. compared to what... <laughs> July of 2016 was. Um, fortunate thing, though, is Uganda um, is quite good because most they have very vast open areas in northern Uganda. And so they work it out in such a way that uh, they demarcate an entire area and, you know, basically map them out into little lots. And so once a household, and that household will be that's defined you loosely because right. usually traditionally it's man, woman, children, and whatever extended relatives, and they would get a lot of land with another area demarcated as uh, you know farm area in which then they 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 are allowed to go and farm, um, you know, which is a different scenario to, for example, in uh, northwest Kenya, which is a fairly desolate and arid uh, area. You know, think Arizona, New Mexico type area. Okay. Um, that you really can't do much with the land, and you have to wait for, for you know, for food um, and other handouts, basically, to be able to exist. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity 
that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I was talking a couple of weeks ago to a, a former ambassador hmm. uh, who spent a lot of his professional career in Africa. And he was uh, criticizing the United States and, and our government and our people as basically being people that uh, ignore Africa, know very little about it. Uh, write it off as as being third world, but uh, d- they don't look at the positive aspects of it, the, the growing economies, the uh, young populations, uh, but at the same time ignoring some of the, the, the heinous uh, problems that go on with human rights and, and, and human suffering. Do you feel that the United States has ignored South Sudan? Oh, I mean, um, probably, and and this is for the Obama uh, supporters out there, that this is going to sound like a a stab in the back. Uh, I I think that that trend started really during the, the Obama administration. In fact, overall, George Bush was the best president for Africa. He, he uh, probably in terms of being able to to get trade deals, uh, the big one, of course, is what they call the AGOA, which is the African Growth and Opportunities Act, which basically meant, you know, textiles coming out of Africa uh, would get preferential treatment, you know, to, to be sold into the U.S. And some people have become millionaires because that's all they're doing, you know, making textiles to send uh, to the state side. Uh, on the flip side, uh, too, is the, you know, for example, now this this story of, of South Sudan, it's not sellable. And I, I once talked to a very conservative, um, uh, you know, fellow who, who had worked uh, advising George Bush. I said, listen, your biggest success story, foreign policy, is Africa. How come you guys are not spending much time talking about these successes? Yeah, we can't pitch it. Can't we, pitch it. Yeah, you can't pitch it. You can't sell it. It's, it, it doesn't fit into nice little nuggets of information. Just like I've tried to explain to you this right. case of South Sudan. It doesn't fit this nice mold. You know, the good guys on one side, the bad guys on another, and they've got an issue, and we step in between and make him stop. No. It's not like that. Here you can't, layers, sometimes you know. can't tell the good guys from the bad <laughs> right. guys. Right. You know, one day the good guys are good and tomorrow they're bad. Yeah. And and I think, um, you know, real emphasis needs to be put because, you know, they say Africa is the last frontier. Well, that's really right now where the money is. If anybody who cares about money, um, it's it's sort of the, 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 the place that, in terms of growth, um, economically speaking, that is the last place that has sort of not been uh, untainted. And the shocking thing is, 
the Chinese have figured this out, <laughs> I was, and they're on the ground. <laughs> I was going to say, they, they, the former ambassador said very quickly that the Chinese are are there with their money and their, and their influence, and that they see this, uh, whereas we either don't see it or refuse to recognize it. Yeah, yeah. because, I mean, there's so much that I think— and and you, if you think about aid, you know a lot of Americans, you know, one, my best friend included, gets hung up on, oh, why are we giving the money? We're giving this money to all these people. We have, um, you know, all these problems at home, health care issues and all of that. So, okay, well, nobody ever asked the questions. How much money are we giving anyway compared right. to other countries? Right. It's it's a very small amount, and at last count, I think it was less than I think a percent or something like that. It's of, very small. It's a very small amount of money, but on the flip side, think about it that um, you know y- you get to be able to shape a number of things. You know, for example, and they say, well, you know, maybe the Chinese government is able to to do a lot of infrastructure projects, and be, it's because they don't ask questions about issues of human rights and and all of this kind of stuff. But there's still a lot of soft diplomacy that can be played that don't get played. And I think, um, you know, for example, now, I mean, even in the case of South Sudan and Sudan, the special envoy, who's this big diplomat who's supposed to represent the United States over Sudan and South Sudan, I don't think this person has been appointed yet. And right. there was talk, for example, about lifting sanctions against against Sudan, the economic sanctions. So that's now being left. It seems like we we're more we're more consumed about other, you know, domestic things. And I think uh, leadership, you know, y- you know, we shouldn't so much be so consumed about the domestic front, um, because. Guess what? If the United States doesn't step forward as a as a leader in world affairs, somebody else is going to step into that gap. And increasingly, we're seeing that the Chinese have said, "Well, this is the gap that's there." Um, we're seeing even Russians uh, are stepping in, uh, you know, to advise on issues of technology and stuff like, like that. Uh, we even see Israelis participating actively in Africa, uh, you know, as small as it is. And yet they've got bigger issues to worry about security, right. if you think about it. Right. Yeah. You said that you were a refugee. Did did you leave under a threat or did you leave anticipating a threat to, to come to the United States? Mm. Um, well, I mean, when... When I came to the U.S., it was uh, just in thinking that, okay, what happens after I finish this, yeah, <laughs> this college degree? What now? And I'd already left uh, back then, the Sudan then. Um, I think I was 14, old enough to for conscription. And I was a fairly tall, lanky kid that just, you know, anybody would love to have. And uh, the first, the first fleeing uh, at the height of the war, basically in '89, was that my father looked at it and said, "Listen, this thing is really getting bad. You need out of here." And so, you know, they put me on a plane, 
you know, we, my father and I went to Kenya and a couple of weeks later he says, well, drops me off in this boarding school and says, listen, you're going to have to be a big boy now. I have to go back to see about your mother and siblings. And uh, so this is the beginning of life. After all, you have family here in Kenya. Uh, and that was the harsh introduction into refugee life. Figure it out. Figure it out. And so the teenage angst that teenagers yeah. go through didn't have to bother because there were much more bigger issues to worry about. And so when I got to the U.S. and the thought was, okay, so what happens after you finish this degree? Because, you know, in most cases, the thing is like, you've studied, okay, get on another plane, just like you got on one coming here, so you go. And basically, I petitioned the United States government to said, listen, I, ha I have credible fear of persecution and that if I was to go, because uh, there were some activities that we were, you know, I was involved in. I mean, I was the guy sort of um, that helped distribute the, at the time, what is now current government of Sudan, I mean, South Sudan, uh, their newsletters. I mean, every newsletter that went abroad, that was my job. And I found that out very quickly that I had already been made the blacklist at the Sudan Embassy in in Kenya uh, for this activity. Somehow somebody passed that information. So I looked at it and said, no, United States government, I think I have, a, uh, I made a case that uh, there is credible fear because people who have, have gone back, uh, having been known to have done activities that are considered uh, treasonous, uh, you, you know, get a jail term or, you know, on the west side, you never get to see the light of day. And that, that began my, my journey into life in this Buckeye State. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take you to go through that process? And, and you are a U.S. citizen yes, now yes. As, a, as a result of that. But how long did that process take you? Well, back then, it, it, well, I think I applied initially in, that was July of 95. By that December, I, I had gotten the approval. And the way it works is, you fill this form out, you write your letter of request, and they've evaluated to see if, okay, is this a credible case? And of course, the United States knew very well what was going on then um, in, in, in this, the Civil War in, in South Sudan at the time. And so you get called into a room like this, and you, know, you have a federal agent sitting there, make you to swear that you say nothing except the truth, and uh, and then they ask you questions based on what's on there because there have been a lot of fraudulent cases of sure. where people come up and say they, people have actually claimed for what they call, this is what they call asylum status. And by the way, there are different levels of, of this these things uh, for that matter. Um, and at the end of the year, I got a letter in the mail saying, well, you know, you've uh, convinced us that you've created this credible fear of persecution, so you're welcome to remain in the United States for an indefinite period um, with the idea that, you know, don't go messing with the law. And <laughs> 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 don't go getting arrested. <laughs> right, right, because that jeopardizes a lot of things. Yeah. What, Sudan is part of the uh, six or seven countries that... Uh, Donald yeah. Trump has on his uh, list, list yeah. of, of 
uh, on the travel ban, it's Iran, Libya, Syria, Somalia, Sudan, and, mm-hmm. and Yemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Sudan's different than South Sudan. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you had any dealings with that? I know it doesn't affect you mm-hmm. personally, but – I, you've got to know people who have. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I, I know of acquaintances when the first order was issued. On that Saturday. Yes. Or Friday the first, night. Yes, it yes. was the and, Saturday and, that. And in fact, I was on, on my way back. Uh, this was in January, I believe. Yes, I mean, it was. I was on my way back from Kenya. Uh, when I landed and, you know, finally settled and recovered, that's when I was like, whoa, while you, you are in the air, there was an order <laughs> issued. And. Uh, and truly, there were a number of um, uh, Sudanese. Uh, I think, case in point, there's an acquaintance, uh, a friend of a friend who, who's uh, uh, training as a medical doctor, and she landed uh, stateside, you know, and this order had been in effect already while she was in the air. And they ended up putting her back on the same, on the next plane back to the Sudan. And, said, oh. and this was literally towards the end of a medical degree and I said well the, the problem with the order is that it never takes somebody's context into into consideration it was just a blanket thing and there um, was no appeal from it yeah it was and just it, yes uh, and there's no appeal process which which you know in all uh, issues in in the United States you always have room for appeal but appeal was not part of it whether it's a case, you know, they've said so far, oh, well, it was the interpretations that the local uh, customs and border patrol people, you know, at the port of entry interpreted it different and whatever. But um, in the past, you know, you, you they would take your circumstances into consideration. Okay, so why were you here anyway in, in the United States? So, I mean, we ended up with these horror stories where grandmothers were being deported. I mean, that was just a horrible thing. <laughs> but, uh, it, to some extent, and so uh, that order still still stands, but you know it, it doesn't affect um, people, say, who are born in Sudan, um, because on and and who are U.S. Uh, citizens, citizens, right? You know, because you'd have, for example, your U.S. passport would say, you know, c- country of birth would lease Sudan, but of course, as a citizen of the United States, that uh, that apply. wouldn't have apply. What will you do after you get your PhD? Well, I think this will, this kind of work would still continue, um, you know, whether within uh, an academic setting. Uh, I, you know, the constant strain has been that of of, of teaching and learning, um, while combining the interest in development work. And I think I'll I'll sort of keep that up uh, because it's necessary. I mean. Uh, you know, the last bit we worked on was to sort of get the get a radio station and a TV station st- established, which was funded by one of the state governments. And simply put, there, there was nobody out there that that knew the context of South Sudan who you know could be counted. So a, a small team of us, very there's a very small team of sort of media types that continued. But I think I'll continue in some aspect of that work um, within within that region. Um, but uh, probably uh, my grandium is to also help set up at least a community radio station that would sort of um, do, you know, 
would help train and do teaching and instruction over over the air. Well, yeah. best of luck. Uh, stay in touch. Uh, I, I want to see how this saga continues. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Today, we've been talking with Colin Lasso, a journalist and scholar from war-torn South Sudan. He talks about the struggles in his homeland and the difficulties facing 1.2 million refugees. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that through Apple Podcasts or Google Play or at NPR One. We also welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.